0: designed for disruption. Today we're talking about coming together and what it will take for people in this country to rally around solutions to big societal problems. At a time when things feel more divided than ever, is it possible to reach consensus? Is consensus even the goal? We're going to talk today with a special guest who has spent years researching public attitudes and mindsets around social issues and ideas to gain an understanding of how the public thinks about these issues and what the public thinks we ought to do about them. Sean Adamak introduces today's guest. Thanks, Nick. I'm Sean. I'm a communication strategist and a partner with Hairpin.
1: My name is Kristen Hughes, and I am a co-founder and creative director at Hairpin.
2: And I'm Craig, partner at Hairpin. And so our guest today is Nat Kendall-Taylor. He is the CEO of the Frameworks Institute, a DC-based research organization we use a lot in our work at Hairpin. They apply social science methods to study how people understand social issues and, and then how best to frame them so people can think a little differently about the problem and therefore a little differently about the solution. Nat, welcome to Design for Disruption.
3: Thank you very much. Looking forward to doing some disruption here with y'all.
2: <laughs> so um, I'd, I'd love to dive in first. I w- want to talk about your work. want to talk about uh, frameworks and framing in general and want to do so in the context that we're all living in. You know, in this bizarre time culturally, post-election feels different than most post-elections do um, for a lot of different reasons. I want to get into all of that first. I just want to kind of orient the audience to you. Um, you're an anthropologist. You've spent years studying in places like Kenya and Azerbaijan and Kazakhstan. How in the world did you come to this work, uh, helping communicators uh, for social justice, social advocate, social advocacy organizations?
3: Yeah, those are those are all that's all true. Um, <laughs> but it seems really far apart, not only geographically, but conceptually from the work that that you described that we do at Frameworks and that I've been doing on framing for just shy of 15 years now. Um, And so in graduate school, and even as an undergrad, I was really interested in a particular kind of anthropology that's called psychological anthropology, which is, um, among other things, really concerned with how culture influences the way that we think, and kind of how Culture, not kind of materially in the Indiana Jones artifact archaeology kind of way, but but rather in mind, cognitively, um, culture influences um, how we make decisions, and importantly, how we process information, um, how we kind of what what in the field is called make meaning, kind of how we come to understand things and use culture in so doing, and. In graduate school, became really interested in that um, in that field or in that idea of culture influencing thinking and understanding as applied to to health decision making situations, um, and had a fantastic opportunity to to work on the coast of Kenya in a little little uh, town called Kilifi, uh, which is just north of Mombasa, which is the country's second city, in um, in the field of epilepsy, specifically pediatric epilepsy, and so um, interesting kind of situation or context there where there's a lot of epilepsy on the coast of Kenya, um, primarily as a result of it being one of, if not the most malarially endemic areas in the world. And so when young kids um, have cerebral malaria, create lesions on the brain, which can lead to um, seizure disorders, right? So a really high incidence of, of chronic seizure disorders in kids and a really low incidence of people seeking biomedical treatment for for that condition. Like, maybe 3% more like it um, of the kids who have chronic conditions receiving um, treatment. And so it's this fascinating, but on the ground, utterly depressing issue of like, why is that? Um, And the normal kind of public health answers are treatments too expensive, it's too far away. um, People lose too much time um, in, you know, subsistence farming by going to clinic. And it's a really interesting area also in that it's, There's a large amount of biomedical resource in the area. There's this major malaria hospital that's there. And as a kind of offshoot of that, um, anti-epilepsy drugs were fully subsidized, right? They were free. Um, They had really interesting ways of getting them out into rural communities through kind of um, health outposts. And they paid people to travel into clinics to get treatment. Yet, despite all of that, like despite addressing all of these normal factors, this treatment gap persisted. And to get all the way to the end of a long story, um, spoiler alert, the answer was, was culture, right? The answer was that, that families understood epilepsy in ways that weren't addressed by taking a pill every day, right? That had these kind of spiritual causations that biomedical treatment was completely not addressing. Um, in the way that that they, that they treated the, the condition. So, you know, that sounds really different from thinking about how people understand education and healthcare and addiction and climate change, but it's, it's really not, right? It's the same idea of how people use culture in Kenya, right? Culture around um, what's called Nyagu, kind of spiritual causations of, of epilepsy in the United States, how people understand culturally education and health and parenting and all these things, how that culture in mind, Influences the decisions that people make, influences how people understand issues, and so that's the—that's how I got from from here to there. I basically do the same thing uh, that I used to do, but now I do it on social issues in the United States and look specifically at um, kind of how culture influences policy support um, and understanding and and engagement with social
2: issues. So if if I'm a if I'm a nonprofit executive or, or if I'm a communications director at a, you know, say a foundation or some, some other social sector advocate, why do I care about that? Why do I care about what framework studies and, and produces?
3: Well, I mean, at, at, at base, it's this fundamental nugget that comes from framing research, which is um, it's not just what you have to say that matters, but how you say it. And I think at some level, certainly the folks on on the podcast here know that. Uh, at, a, at a pretty deep and fundamental way. But I think we all know that, right? The choices that we make and how we communicate information, both big and small, influence what people do as a result, right? That's pretty commonsensical. Now, if you were um, someone who was in, in charge of a foundation or a program area of a foundation, that matters because what you're trying to do is, is make change, right? And how people think about an issue is, is a fundamental part of that change either happening or not happening. And so, to work back from that, the way that you talk about that issue is a fundamental feature of how people understand it. Uh, and so, the choices that grantees and members of se- sectors make and how they present information on, on these issues again, education, healthcare, immigration, justice reform can influence, can either kind of unlock space. For more productive conversations about those, those issues, right? Creating the ability for people to engage with information in new ways, opening people up to see the value of solutions, or those choices can can lock it up, right? They can shut down conversation. They can make people unwilling to see ideas from new perspectives. They can make people less supportive of certain solutions. And so, and I think this is true, and it's probably happened. I don't know. You you can probably speak to this better than I can, Sean. But over the last maybe 15 years, I think that, that foundations have really uh, kind of come around to the importance of communications and framing within communications as kind of a, a communications tool and see the the value of, you know, if I want to, if I want to make change, I need hearts and minds to be with me. And if I want hearts and minds to be with me, the way that I communicate about these issues is, um, is vital, right? Is, 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 can be the difference between whether I cut and get through, or whether I get swallowed up and shut down.
2: I think that's right. I mean, the, the uh, philanthropic sector for a while was investing in sort of top-down policy change, and realized over time that that kind of policy change is the least sustainable, and that if you can get hearts and minds with you, then that you know, they frankly, can change a culture, and that's what makes it sticky. Um, I want to I, I want to I orient the conversation now to this moment that we're in as a nation, and then I invite uh, Kristen and Craig to, to to jump in with their own questions. So, you know, we're a nation that's been through an election cycle, uh, a cycle like, unlike any other. Um, we hear all the time that we're more divided now than we are ever, you know, and and and, and how toxic that can be, particularly for frankly, our listeners for people's whose job it is to, um, make good in the world. Um, what can frameworks research do to help them as they sort of navigate this terrain carefully, trying to figure out if there even is a middle anymore? Um, you know, what you're seeing in the research world and, and in frameworks work, what can help them?
3: So I think, um, what you're talking about is an issue of understanding, kind of how we see our country, how we see ourselves, how we see different groups of people. And we know kind of if we learn one thing from the science of framing, it's that that understanding, kind of like all understanding is frame dependent, right? It is contingent. It is based on how we are presented with information. And so there is uh, a good amount of the way that we think about other groups and the way that we think about polarization and the way that we think about our country that results from the information that we are that we are fed, kind of the information diet that we are on and exposed to. Um, and so, to me, that's a really kind of important um, feature in understanding polarization and understanding public opinion more generally. So, so to kind of take that, put that to the side for one second. The other thing that I think is really interesting, and this is not um, this is not work that frameworks does. This is the work that a bunch of other social scientists are doing. People at organizations like more in common and beyond conflict who really take on polarization as their, as their mission is that um, we may not be as polarized as we think we are. Right. So there's this really interesting phenomenon in social science called false polarization, which is the idea that there's, um, there's kind of affective polarization, which is how, how we think about other groups. And then there's, actual polarization, which is kind of the difference in ideas or perspectives that we have. And this work consistently finds that we, we see ourselves as being more polarized than we actually are, right? which, is, which is really, really interesting. And so you start to think about that first idea that I talked about that understanding is frame dependent and you can kind of start to see a really depressing forward picture which is the more that we hear about how polarized we are, the more that we believe that we are polarized. And over time, because of the connection between belief and actual action and attitudes, that current gap between how polarized we think we are and how polarized we actually are is gonna to start to go away. Right. And so in some ways, the the worst thing that we can do for polarization, if we want to, if we want to positively affect it is to talk about how polarized we are right it's this really interesting paradox of (laughs) the more you talk about how polarized we are the more polarized we are uh and so i'm interested in that as a phenomenon but at some degree i'm more interested in then what do we actually do if the answer is not to talk about how polarized we are what should we be talking about Um, and i think the the jury is out on that question But there is really interesting research that's going on by some of those groups that I talked about that's looking at that more kind of intervention or prescriptive question. What are the strategies? What are the communication strategies? What are the framing strategies that we can pursue that instead of making us inadvertently more polarized or maybe not inadvertently always actually make us less polarized?
4: At the same time, it feels like we're, it's such a dynamic model, right? By, by talking about the reality of social media, it feels like more people are aware of the negative impact of social media. So there, it feels like there are these kind of things we can chase ourselves through. You know, We wake up today reading about the, the ostensibly Russian hack of the US government and most Fortune 100 companies and realizing that we are now effectively wired into somebody else's ideological system and and potentially, you know, now everyone's an outlet for, for the possibility of, of more of this, right? Feeding this division. So how do you, how do you think about that? You know, it, it feels like a, a tension between do we stop talking about it and making people helpfully understand that social media is not the great thing that it was once thought it was as, as people begin to understand more about that? Does that work against us too? Or how do, how do those forces thrown in the mix and then with actors who are actively seeking to to foment more of this division that we're talking about. How do we think about that?
3: It's really interesting, Craig, like um, if we wanna have another conversation, my wife is upstairs, like actually upstairs, that's not a metaphor for something else, but, uh, and she studies, um, she's been on calls all day. I've been hearing them about uh, Russia and the hack and she kind of studies Russian foreign policy and misinformation. So. I'm not, I feel totally out of my depth weighing in on that particular example or instantiation. But I think that kind of the idea behind your question is, a, um, is really important, right? And I think that there's a way in which we can make people alert to the effects of media on opinions and understanding without requeuing polarization. And this is, this is something that people are, are exploring. Does that um, kind of false polarization effect um, change or modify as people become more aware of the effect that media has on their thinking and their understanding? And again, the jury's out on that, but I think it's a really strong and interesting hypothesis. Um, and so this is this gets called different things, kind of um, you know media education, or and it, it, it's happening everywhere from um, you know elementary school to I mean, I was just listening to one of my kids' Zoom classes the other day, and they had this whole thing about kind of becoming a, a responsible digi- digital media uh, user and consumer. And a lot of it was around misinformation and and the effect that exposure to the media has on the way that people think. And so I do think that that is, um, that that is part potentially of a strategy for addressing what we're talking about.
1: Um. Nat, you said something um, which made me think about um, anxiety. Uh, and I would say that coming from a family that's predisposed to anxiety, there's a lot of um, conversation uh, through my childhood, through my kid's childhood about the idea of identifying, understanding the shape of, and not feeding anxiety. And um, the way you were talking about polarization and feeding it and um, understanding that we are in fact less um, polarized than we think we are, I, it made me think of like we are often less anxious and less afraid than we think we are. It's just the like amygdala or something kicks in to sort of take over the ability to critically think, to listen, to stay in a place where you can calmly reason. Um, And Craig, your thing about social media, I do feel like is is almost like a state of anxiety for people because it's so quick. You can just like participate or endorse in some way or foment um, just because it's it's so um, quick and easy the way I feel like anxiety is because it can like uh, subsume everything else.
3: I think kind of anxiety and fear and the, the physiological and psychological um, responses to that kind of emotion are really interesting. When you think about how often those systems are being activated over the last nine months, but I mean, we, 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 we can't just say over the last nine months and you all know this, that a lot of communications um, is, is based in, in fear and anxiety provoking framing and activations, right? It's a, it's a great way to get people to do very specific short-term things. I am scared, so I do this. It is a horrible way to get people to kind of open up their minds and reconsider how issues work and what we should be doing. Think about what a normal uh, ad for child maltreatment would look like. They have a, normally a kid in a corner. It's black and white, dirty face, sad music. Like That's a fear to me. <laughs> That's incredibly fear and anxiety provoking. And it's really good for getting people to donate money. It's horrible for getting people to reevaluate the way that they think about um, children and society and parenting and and maltreatment. It's horrible for getting people to think that there's actually something that we as a society can do to address this issue. Uh, And so I think fear, anxiety are hallmarks. They're cornerstones of the kind of repertoire for communicators, but those kinds of communications, that kind of framing is incredibly dangerous and counterproductive when it comes to the kind of work that that we do at Frameworks, which is to be a little dramatic, trying to kind of change culture and open people up uh, to new ideas and move thinking forward. Those, Those things that you talk about, Kristen, are the antithesis of that. Those are active barriers uh, and obstacles to doing that kind of work.
1: I've witnessed um, frameworks work um, be uh, used where somebody goes, "Oh my God, I, you mean I've been doing it all wrong for the last twenty years?" Um, to like to frame, to frame their thesis, their argument, their uh, theory of change, um, and using basically digging the hole deeper you know, given that example you just did about um, child safety and t- child endangerment, um, I, you must have witnessed so many individuals and organizations go, oh, can you share some?
3: So, so even working kind of within the fear paradigm, that kind of, um, that kind of a, a no-no, <laughs> think, about, um, think about climate change. Think about the way that for so long, and I do think that this has changed. I'd like to be able to say that people doing framing research had some influence on that change, but I don't know if I can claim that. Um, think about how long climate change was dire doom, gloom. Think about how many, how many images of the earth being on fire you have seen um, over the last 10 years of your life. I don't know.
2: And the the way in which the lonely penguin on the, on the iceberg or the,
3: yeah, the polar bear, right. That's the one that's (laughs) the polar bear. That's bigger than the ice piece of ice that it's standing on. Like I know that image I've seen it at least 300 times over the last 10 years, I'm sure of it. Um, But, but again, what that does is a similar effect, even though it's a dramatically different issue than child maltreatment. I know that the, the effect is the same, right? It does not get us to think about anything that can be done there's this phenomenon called emergency fatigue or crisis inflation, which we are in the midst of <laughs> all the time, which is as soon as people hear that kind of call to crisis, that urgency um, being evoked, they immediately start to think that, you know, okay, here's another big, bad social problem. I know there's a whole pile of them over here. I don't know anything that we can do about them. I realize this is important, but I'm kind of paralyzed and I don't know what to do. So I'm just going to put this one, this big, bad problem on that pile of other big, bad problems. And my kind of psychic energy is, is going elsewhere. You haven't earned um, any of it. Um, and I've just kind of verbalized something that's more of kind of a cognitive or psychological process. But I think that's, that's frequently what goes on in situations like that. I mean, I think another one is that that we see a lot of in in this time, uh, kind of since the the kind of emergence of a, of a really um, robust discussion around uh, racial justice, uh, which has always been going on. I don't mean to suggest that that's a new thing, but as it's kind of fomented, is this this feeling that what we need to do is just describe the problem, you know, just just lay it out just use those words, structural racism or systemic racism. Um, And what we've found across issues, whether it's uh, neighborhood segregation, concentrated poverty, whatever it might be, is that kind of bald description, just laying it out, doesn't have the, the mobilizing, the engaging, the motivating effects that we as issue experts think that it will. And that what's required is to go beyond description to either explaining a problem and how it works, making people a little bit smarter about how something like concentrated poverty works or not leaving people at just description of problem, but taking them to you know, an example of a solution so that people can see that there's not only a problem, but there actually is something that we can do to, to address it or fix it. And so moving beyond just description to showing people how it works or to showing them what a solution looks like is another really good example where um, I can show you lots of really beautiful bar graphs that show that effect. And, and we are frequently in rooms with people who think that, that just kind of going in and, and laying it out in terms of what's going on is really um, all they need to do or is the most effective thing to do. And while that's important, my point is that that description is important but it doesn't get you alone to where you wanna be in terms of communications.
4: And Can we talk for a bit about the, the short-term pressures that, that our listeners are experiencing? So you know, I have a need particularly now as the executive director of a nonprofit to keep the lights on, right? I'm trying to raise money in an end of the year fundraising and I, and I know what's worked before. And, and now I hear you telling me that maybe I should try something else Are are those, how do the things you've just described linked to fundraising, linked to uh, employee engagement, retention, all of those immediate clanging pressures that the sector feels ordinarily and increasingly in this time of crisis? Are are there ways to harness some of the more sophisticated thinking and uh, the research-based approaches that help people open their wallets immediately? Or, Or are you playing a longer game with some of the, the tools that in the in the thinking that you're talking about how, how can our, our listeners reconcile or, or create a path for themselves that perhaps draw on your these techniques and tools that still help them in the immediate uh, in terms of their immediate needs
3: i think it's a it's a great question i'm not going to claim to have a to have a satisfying answer to that question craig but um so i'll give you i'll give you an example i think that there are ways to to have your cake and eat it too, when it comes to that, that tension between the, the short-term, I gotta get the money or gotta get this policy win and the long-term kind of culture change work that I think a lot of increasingly nonprofits are realizing is instrumental to the mission, to the, to the goals that they have as an organization. So um, kind of going across the pond to the UK, uh, we've done some work with a homelessness organization called Crisis UK. So they have robust fundraising operations that occur around the holiday season um, and they have been successful in raising a lot of money that is required to do the direct service work that they do and the, and the strategy work that they do but a lot of these appeals are exactly what you would think that they are right they appeal to the stereotype of a middle-aged man sleeping on the street um, and Sometimes having some indication of a substance use addiction in the a substance use issue in the in in the in the appeal. In the work that we did, we found that um, you could shift understandings of homelessness, uh, increase support for a pretty wide range of policies, in part by breaking that stereotype, by presenting people with kind of non-stereotypic images of what homelessness looks like, whether so it's couch surfing or uh, kind of insecurity in housing situations. And um, the, correctly so, the organization's response was, well, I'm really scared of trying anything new because you know, if I do, then we're done. <laughs> if, if I do and it doesn't work, if it doesn't raise this money in the short term, then forget the long-term stuff, right? If, I can't, if we can't continue as an organization for another year, there, there ain't gonna be no long-term stuff. And so on that project, we ran a really interesting, what I, what I think is a really interesting experiment um, that looked at, uh, from a fundraising perspective, kind of a, an a kind of basic A-B testing, kind of what happens when you do it this way versus that way. And we had one appeal that was kind of their traditional appeal. And we had another appeal that used alternative images, kind of alternative examples of what homelessness is and looks like and who it affects. And we measured uh, people's donations, the fundraising aspect. We also measured their thinking about homelessness more general That people think it is a problem that can be solved. Were they supportive of kind of non-charity policies, housing policies, economic policies, uh, employment policies that would address homelessness? And we found that the, the, the kind of traditional appeal and the alternative appeal raised almost the exact same amount of money, the alternative one was mildly higher, but not in a statistically significant way. So you got the same money in the door from these two. But when you looked at those kind of issue understanding and policy support, there was a dramatic difference between that traditional appeal and the alternative appeal. And it was in the way that you would expect based on the way that I've introduced this, right? The alternative appeal got you a lot more of that kind of change an issue understanding, support for policies, thinking that it could be, uh, thinking of this as kind of a tractable rather than an intractable issue. Uh, I think that those kinds of solutions are hard to come by though. So I don't wanna kind of over idealize this. I think that it is hard to find things that allow you to have your cake and eat it too. And in the absence of those, Craig, to get back to your question, I think it's a really difficult situation that nonprofits are in. Especially those nonprofits that are reliant on on direct fundraising and have missions that entail long term culture change, um, and so I don't I, I think it's a I don't want to underestimate the the difficulty of that situation, but I do think it can be
4: done. Yeah, and your idea of prototyping or testing, you know, is perhaps a low risk way to to step towards some some of that change. So a question for you then, so you talk about culture change. So whose job is it, or who, who can do the job of, of changing culture? If you spin, place spin the sector for a second. So social sector organizations t- strapped, maybe can experiment a little. Uh, what's next, government, private sector, individuals like us, uh, organization. How, how do you see long-term culture being shaped on these things? Who are the allies? Where's the round table where people are sitting around saying, we're going to move the, We're going to try to move the big table on this.
3: So first of all, um, if you all play spin the sector, that's a sad, depressing, just geeky, wonky that. thing. And, <laughs> and I'm in the right place. Um, so that's great. Craig, just invite me over. Maybe the next time you do that. And, and I think it'll be, it'll be fun. Um, I, I, so I have a, a totally un- satisfying answer to that question and very partial. I would love to hear what other people um, think, probably particularly Sean, because my answer to that is gonna go back to part of Sean's professional history um, as a funder. So I think this is the, the kind of thing, your question, Craig, where, where philanthropy, because of resources and time perspective, um, play a, an absolutely critical role. Right, where the, I mean, the answer to your question, Craig, is that no one of those things that you said is gonna be sufficient to do this alone, right? You do need that table and it needs to be a table that, that continually convenes over time to try to do this long-term disciplined work and it requires coordination and resourcing and infrastructure and all that, all that good stuff. And I do think that um, philanthropy is in a, a quite a unique position to, to push that those kind of groups together to resource them to provide the kind of infrastructure that's required to do that, that collaboration and, and coordination. I mean, you all know this well, but just uh, assuming that people will come together, find the song sheet that they should be singing from and proceed to to sing with great synergy from that song sheet is utter baloney, right? That does not happen by itself. And so there needs to be some external provocation. There needs to be some external resourcing and and support of that kind of of that kind of work so it is one of these things there's many of them i don't mean to suggest that this is the only thing where where i think there's a there's a unique and and very important role for philanthropy to play um, i'd love to hear what what sean thinks about that
2: yeah i i think that i think that's true of course and i think that philanthropy in this case is probably a proxy for the privileged, you know, the influential, um, it, it, you know, it, there's, there's a reason why the African American community in this this national reckoning around racial justice said, it's your job, white people, right? It's you know we can't do this for you and aren't going to, and um, so you know the, the the challenge with that is that those influencers, those privileged, whose job it is and by the way, who are most positioned to change culture are also the ones that benefit from culture not changing the most. So I think that our job then as a sector is to change who the influencers are. And, and I, we're, in a, we're in a period now and have been for probably the last 10 years or so where the, the sector is waking up to the power of networks and coalitions and numbers and um philanthropy hasn't been quite so quick to to uh to get behind them but they are now increasingly and and i think that will start to 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 flip that dynamic where you know the the power and privilege frankly has some competition
4: yeah so another way of asking that is is philanthropy up for the challenge is that system ready to to evolve in this way I think I think it's a really important question. I think some foundations are some some philanthropic minds are thinking this way. Many are not.
3: Yeah, and again, this is probably one as a as an insider in this world that that Sean can speak to. I think it's my experience is Craig. It's it's patchy and uneven in terms of that that thinking that willingness uh, that you describe. So we're part of a, a project that's funded by the Gates Foundation on narratives of poverty and economic mobility. And they are very much in that place that you're talking about, Craig. They're bringing people together who are doing narrative research and they're bringing people together who are creating content and they're bringing, so they're really, um, they've assembled that table, I think, Craig, mm-hmm. and see their role as as resourcing and infrastructuring, even though that's not a word, you know what I mean? That, that collection of people who are going to be instrumental and influential in in doing the kind of work that we're talking about but I and there, I'm sure there are other examples uh, but 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 there aren't there aren't a ton of them I don't think Craig uh, I don't know what do you think Sean
2: you no know, I think that's I think that's right it, it um, it's been an interesting experience seeing how philanthropy is kind of behaving in this moment honestly and you know I mean you saw after George Floyd, in the midst of COVID, uh, uh, foundations, some of whom are clients of ours, open the floodgates it, it, with almost no uh, restriction of, uh, of funding um, in allowing organizations to just frankly do what these organizations have begged funders to do for years, which is just let them do what they do well and, and, and get out of the way. Um, and so I want to sort of circle the conversation back to this moment and, and and what Frameworks' research can teach the sector uh, on how to navigate this moment. You, you know, Frameworks' research spans across issue area, much like our work does as well. We work across, we work only on issues that we, we care about, um, it, it, similar to Frameworks, um, but they, they are varied. And, and you've sort of uncovered in the collection of that work some cultural kind of realities, some cultural beliefs, I've heard you call them cultural myths, that share a cross issue, right? And that if these myths are amplified by advocates in the field, they're actually doing themselves a disservice. You know, Kristen asked you about that, uh, that aha moment that, you know, my God, I've been doing it all wrong. I've experienced that as well. And usually that I've been doing it all wrong is because of this amplification of some of these myths. Can you talk about the myths and and how they might apply across issue area?
3: Yeah, um, so this is one of these, these times, I have a lot of these where I just feel incredibly lucky to get to do this work. And especially as an anthropologist to get to study culture across so many issues for such a long period of time. But, but yeah, I mean, we've so, so I came on the very first project that I worked on, Sean was one that, that you and I worked on, um, uh, on kind of investigating deep understandings of the education system and, and its reform, its change. And since then to now, I've worked on just under 45 different social issues and all from this perspective of looking at this culture and mind idea. What are the deep understandings that are informing how people think about those issues? And it's really interesting that on different issues, there are different understandings and that's kind of cool. And then it's utterly depressing when you see across all those 42 issues, you see some of the very same understandings at play. Um, it's, both, it's both depressing because the ones that you see are ones that are not productive for progressive change, as I'll talk about in a second. But it's also, I think, kind of mildly hopeful when you see the same understandings. And that's because you realize that if, if people could kind of get their selves together and start collaborating across issues, I know that sounds crazy, and started to use some common frames, you have this, this ability to kind of move some of this really big stuff that is keeping everybody, whether you work on education or immigration or justice reform or climate change from moving forward. And so the three threads of of culture that we've seen run through all of this work are this idea of individualism. You all know this, there's tons of people writing about this, and even more people writing about this over the last nine months, um, probably two months in particular, right? But this is the idea that the the world is the way that it is and the outcomes are the way that they are is an exclusive result of individual will, grit, gumption, drive, choice, decision, internal fortitude, or lack thereof. That my life is a result of the fact that I've been, I've made good choices, I have willpower, I've been disciplined, your life uh, is is less great because you've lacked those things uh and you can see hopefully there's some some in there's some tone in my delivery here that starts to indicate why that's a problem for people who work on things like structures systems and contexts. because if you are hyper attuned and narrowly focused on individuals all that other stuff just ceases to be on your radar and is not recognized as being important um so that's that's the first one and i think that um I think that advocates and communicators inadvertently step into and activate that one all the time um, by telling kind of close up stories of individuals. Think about almost all the stories that are told about poverty, even by people who are working at kind of a structural level against poverty. They are about a person. That person's outcomes are a result of his or her effort or lack thereof. Uh, Education, Sean, you know, this is another one where these kind of stories of individualism, whether it's teachers or students or parents are just hyper uh, kind of potent Um, and they get, you get stepped into all the time. In a way, it's kind of a, it's kind of a paradox. They're so deeply embedded in our minds that even as we are trying to break them, we can inadvertently reactivate them. As a, as a quick example, I'm working on some work on, on parenting and early childhood right now. And there's this really interesting finding that um, well child visits have been dramatically kind of under, under attended and under attended by particular groups of people um, during the pandemic. And the authors of this report who are incredibly progressively minded kept using the word skipped, like families were skipping. So what, I mean, how do you think we read that? I mean, that reads as an indictment of those families. And in this case, we're talking about poor families and families of color. It's an indictment against those families. So if you're a person who's reading that, you're thinking like, what, what the hell's wrong with these people? Why are they skipping? Don't they know how important vaccinations are? Don't they know how important well-child visits are? And so it's, just, it's to me, just this incredibly timely
2: example. It's important to note that the effect of that is not just a blaming of the individual, but also uh, uh, the, the, the extent to which you would support systemic policy to change that condition declines rapidly
3: yeah so if you if you read about families skipping well child visits what are you what are you in support of what do you think the answer is right stop skipping right? right give them education about how important vaccinations are which is totally missing the point they're they're skipping because they're worried about COVID. They're skipping because they're taking care of other family members. They're skipping because they're watching out for the, you know, they're, they're doing what, what I do a lot of my day is in getting my kids on and off Zoom for their education. Like those are not issues that are gonna be fixed by telling someone how important getting your kid vaccinated is or going to developmental screenings. So I think that I, I'm glad you highlighted that, Sean. I could talk about individual for a long yeah. <laughs> time uh, and, the, and the examples abound. Uh, The other one is is fatalism. We've talked a little bit about this one. The idea that the the world is full of dire and on fire problems about which nothing can meaningfully be done. the, The result of that one is that as soon as you start thinking fatalistically about things, your support for solutions across the board is reduced, is depressed, right? I'm not gonna think of putting a lot of money into a solution for a problem that I don't think can be solved. The place where people step into that, again, we've talked about this, is this over-emphasis on problem, the over, you know, whether it's examples about problems, data about problems, urgent tone, whatever it may be. Every time we do that, thinking that if we could only show people how urgent a situation is, they would get it and they would, you know, come running and stumbling over themselves to support our solutions. Every time we do that we activate fatalism and we again, kind of paradoxically make the problem worse. And I just, just to make it clear, it's not like people are intentionally, you know, activating this effect. This is, this is unintended. This is unintentional. Um, well, and then I the think, third- a,
2: I think, I think a good example, just to put a pin on it, uh, of th- that has gotten better. you mentioned it recently. For years, the climate uh, argument was You change your behavior or everybody dies, right? I mean, talk about fatalistic. And so it really wasn't-
3: individualistic, Sean. And individualistic,
2: right, right. And so it really wasn't until, you know, probably Inconvenient Truth when this problem was put in the context of a broader system um, that 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 line, you know, that frame started to shift.
3: Yeah, or when you start to see examples of, Changes at a systemic level happening, and climate outcomes being affected. Okay, the third one, uh, which I think is is a is a one that gets stepped into frequently, but very inadvertently, is us versus them thinking. This kind of way that we have of thinking about groups, in terms of they them over there and me and mine over here, um, and, and there's just so many ways that that that. Way of thinking gets tripped and triggered. It gets triggered every time you use one of those pronouns that I just did. It gets triggered every time you talk about vulnerable groups or at-risk groups. I'm doing air quotes around those right now. Um, but in part, there's there's a there's a there's an evolutionary reason for that. I mean, in-group out-group identification and thinking is something that kind of over the the period of our evolution has been in some ways adaptive, right? Identifying who the in-group is and who the out-group is and and positioning is kind of in the environment of evolutionary adaptedness was adaptive. It was horribly unadaptive <laughs> in the context that we're in right now. But um, the, the ways and the cues uh, for that are, um, you know, they abound. It, it's so easy, whether it's verbs that we choose that kind of grant uh, certain groups agency or deny that agency. Uh, the, the walls that we put up around groups and the way that we think about resources in zero-sum ways are, are really baked in to culture and therefore very easy to kind of trip and activate in the way that we communicate.
1: Nat, I'm curious what problems your clients and partners think they're trying to solve. Our experience is people will come to us and say, I need, and it's usually a thing, a logo, a website. And the more we talk, the more is revealed that in fact, they don't really have a strategy. They don't really know who they are. They don't have a clear vision or a way to articulate their vision. So when people pick up the phone, how did they get to you? What's their understanding of your work? How much educating you have to do and what's the problems that they're trying to solve?
3: I think, so there's a couple of things that are, I'm gonna do the annoying thing where I kind of sort of answer your question and kind of sort of don't. Um, I think that, and again, um, I think Sean can probably attest to this from a kind of funder perspective as well as the current current work that you do, Sean, is that I think people's understanding of not only the importance of communication, but the importance of framing has come has come a long way, even in the 13 years that I've been doing this. So the work that we have to do, Kristen, to kind of talk to one of your questions in quote-unquote educating people on what we do, is, the bar is much lower. Um, the threshold is much lower than it used to be. People kind of get this idea increasingly, and some of it is from unfortunate examples in the last four years where the choices of words and how issues are presented have been, we have seen it firsthand, are really powerful and important in in shaping thinking and and mobilization and motivating action. So I think that that part of our work, the kind of wind up that's necessary when people talk to us and we have to explain what framing is and why it matters. You know, I sometimes say, you know, framing matters because people are already rolling their eyes like, I know this, I know why framing matters. You don't need to tell me that. So I think that's super interesting. Um, Another interesting thing that I've noticed about when people come to us and kind of, like you said, what they, what they, what they think they want, what they actually want is, it tends to be, so there's two parts of doing the work that we do. There's the, the framing strategy, like what, what, what are the framing choices that we can make on an issue to open up space for people to consider the solutions that, um, that we're advocating. Then there's the mobilization part, which is once we know those framing answers, how do we get it out into the world at a, at a dose with enough frequency over enough time for it to have effect. And it is rare that someone comes to us thinking about both of those things. So you either are thinking about wanting to do a cool framing research project. Tell us what the values are that we should use for talking about um, ocean change uh, and acidification. Or you have people who say, I want want your help in thinking about how we get ideas into the drinking water, out into the communications out into the kind of information ecology in ways, but it's rare. And Sean and I are actually working on a project, one of these rare exceptions, where people think about both of those things from the beginning. They think, okay, I've got to know, I got to know what to say. I have to know kind of what the themes, the ideas, the values, the metaphors, whatever it may be, that I should consistently use and have discipline around. Even before I do that, I need to think through what I'm going to do with it how I get those ideas out. Is this a strategy that really is interested in kind of changing frames in news media? Is it an advocacy strategy? Um, are we gonna run a big five-year campaign? Are we interested in influencing entertainment media? Kind of that's a whole bundle of questions that um, that I would say is much more in Sean's lane than it is in my lane. And my lane is kind of that that first bucket of things. But it's rare that people come with a sense of the importance of answering both of those sets of questions. So in this landscape
4: across sectors, I'd love to talk about what role brands, particularly for-profit brands, companies play in this landscape. When we talk about culture change, we can't not talk about the role that brands, particularly large brands, large companies play in doing this. They're shaping culture every day. You know, the media weight at which stuff runs out of a company like a Procter and Gamble, where I spent over a decade of my life, largest advertiser in the world is, 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 a, is, a, is a reality, right? There's a, a bit of a paradox to me in that, that marketers are challenged today. And, and also that many of these brands have social sector aspirations, right? The, the evolution towards purpose-driven branding and the desire and the need to telegraph your values and to take a position and a role in changing society in some way as, as a norm in corporate America today that marketers are kind of stuck right now because they're marketing to a divided nation. They're marketing into the face of this, this, this polarity we're talking about. And on the one hand, many of them sell to the, to the myths, right? The myth of rugged individualism. They sell to the us versus them, right? The the identification of groups and the in and the out. At the same time that they would benefit enormously from some of the, the just, can we just just get back to the work of selling the stuff we wanna sell and not be treading through these landmines of you know, what can I say, what can I say? How do I not alienate half of the country by, by supporting X versus supporting Y? So a, a long lead up to a question around, you know what is the role of, of, of the for-profit sector in this moment of culture change? Are they ever ringing your doorbell? Are they ever interested? How do we get the CEO roundtable table to, to, to take on Support for this type of a project that would be in the interest of every single one of them to start to make some of these longer-term shifts. I'm curious: is that is that ever part of your world, or does that is that sort of un, undiscovered opportunity at this point?
3: It's a great question, um, a long question that has a really short answer to it, Craig. Which is: we don't do any corporate work. <laughs> like, occasionally, corporate clients come to us, and um, I would say we have the the prerogative because of our mission and a precedent of never having done any corporate work of of basically just saying no, that we work for kind of mission driven organizations. So that's a, that's a short answer, but not an interesting one at all. And there's an interesting, there's lots of interesting bits of your, of your question. And I'm going to, I'm going to throw this back to you in a second, but I'm going to say something first, which is, so first of all, branding isn't just the for-profit sector, obviously. I mean, they're, you know, nonprofits Sometimes nonprofits come to us interested in branding. Uh, and I think there's an there's a, there's a important or an interesting tension in the way that branding, as I understand it, which is not my area of expertise branding work is done, which is branding is a competitive activity, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a task of differentiation. So part of branding is about, you know, advancing an organization's Image perspective, whatever, in the face of other competing organizations. And there's a way in which that orientation towards communication is at odds with some of this culture change, long term change communication stuff that I've been talking about, which really turns on the principle of amplification and collaboration. So you need to get the same message, the same themes, the same frames out from multiple organizations in a way that amplifies the dose of that. that frame, that idea, rather than thinking about communications as a competitive activity where organizations are kind of using these strategies to to position their organization vis-a-vis other organizations. So I think there is a bit of the kind of branding idea, which is at odds with this kind of hearts and minds work that I've talked a little bit about. And I'd love to hear, Craig, what you think about whether I'm wrong about that, whether I'm naive about that, or whether there is space in branding work to do that amplification of ideas, task that we've been talking about?
4: Yeah, you know, I think it's, it's such an interesting question. And there is this fundamental tension between I need to advance my goals. And my goals might be the, the most noble goals in the world, right? I might be a social sector organization working on issue area X, but I still am in a competitive environment for you know, share of share of voice, share of dollars, share of uh, leadership within the category, uh, sh- share of attention from philanthropic part, et cetera, right, all around. And so as I think about some of the work that you do that as we have absorbed your work into our work, uh, that if everybody is saying the same thing about this in the same way, that that leads to an absolute lack of differentiation, right? And so how does an organization X in that context, who might be saying the right thing from a long-term perspective, how do they differentiate themselves in a, in a crowded marketplace uh for attention when when the, what the way to do that is to, to speak the unique voice and to speak in a different way. So I think that's a, a really interesting tension that would be fun to experiment with a group of, of se- social sector leaders who are maybe in a network already or are already collaborating in a, in a common way, or maybe even a pool of grantees. You know, I've worked with some foundations with pools of grantees working on similar. Uh, issue areas and trying to find their own voice. So, so I do think there is a way to, to, to strike that balance and it, it would be fun to experiment with that. But but I do I do wonder and would love to, to poke at your and I appreciate the sort of the cleanliness of your non-for-profit activation, but there are so many interesting examples like the work that Ceres did mobilizing the Nikes of the world and and a host of other corporate actors to try to activate their pools of of humans right their stakeholder groups their consumer groups to start thinking and acting in a in a coordinated way against climate change right or a way that. To, to, in other words, use these help support and use these agents these 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 organizations that happen to be in in a for profit model, but who are interested in environmental and or social change uh, to bring them into this tent. Uh, you know, and not draw a line that says, no, because of your motivations or your tax structure, you we know, we, you're not part of this dialogue. That, that feels to me like a, a maybe a place for us to grow as a, as a sector or something to say, these are the agents of cultural change, you know, when, when if you take the top five world advertisers, and if they act in a certain way or espouse a certain set of values or a certain point of view towards diversity or equity, anything, pick it, uh, that, that, that can have my Opinion over the long term, you know, influence on some of these issues. So, I'm curious what others think. You know, I'm often the defender of the corporate world on this podcast, uh, and, and the opportunities that it can create and the unique platform and leverage it has. But, what, what do others think about this?
2: I think it's a good point, and I think it's it 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 speaks back to you know my point earlier is that um, they are players with privilege and. Uh, it it is a big hole in the sort of you know cultural map if we ignore them. Now, having said that, depending on on on, on you know the issue or the, the the position or the stance that they're taking on any given issue, um, there. The positioning of the corporate sector comes with it a certain skepticism because of the incentives that they you know operate under, and so I think that there's there's a lot of work to be done there too, to sort of uh, you know authenticate whatever you know messaging or or or, or positioning is done.
4: Maybe we'll That's start it. with the B Corps or like the the social businesses. We'll let them in the tent first, just a couple. Then we'll uh, we'll see if, see if anybody any bigger ones will follow but go ahead. Now.
3: I don't think you're wrong, Craig. I mean, how could you be wrong in saying that corporations are shapers of culture? I mean, that would be, I'm not, I'm not going to be anywhere that anybody else would ever read or listen to saying that. I mean, that would be ridiculous. But I guess it's in, in some ways, the framework's decision is a strategic one. We are a, we are a small staff. Uh, we're a small organization. Don't plan to to have that change dramatically. And so we feel like our, our resources as an organization are best devoted to working with, with mission-driven kind of nonprofit organizations. Um, in, in part because those organizations typically don't have, don't have access to the kind of resources and work that we do. Uh, that sounds kind of noble it's not meant, It's not meant to sound that way, but I think it, in, in some ways it's less about us thinking that the corporate world and corporations don't matter and more of us thinking tactically about where where our energy is, given that that energy is limited, very
2: limited importantly the other another sector that frameworks doesn 't directly work with is the political. all of you and and even some of our listeners know that I had a, a nice chunk of my career working running campaigns and doing political communication. And I I was introduced to Frameworks' work after I left that field.
1: I've seen, I have to say, um, Craig and Sean use the, uh, I'm gonna use an analogy, quivers that you earned in your corporate work and in your political work um, to serve the the social sector, which tends to be um, our clients. There's so much to learn. From both, I mean, it's you know, and I've seen it powerfully applied and benefit our nonprofit and philanthropic clients immensely because it it's a it's a more holistic approach to um, the problem. That's been my experience.
2: There, there is so much to learn from both, and there is so much that we want to make sure the social sector does not emulate. You know, coming from politics. We have clients a lot that want to mimic the strategies and the tactics of very successful political movements. And what's dangerous about that is that the goal of politics is to get you to that Tuesday in November. Um, It's very short term. It's why you see so many political campaigns focus in on fear and outrage and those stabilizing emotions.
1: I'm so curious what is your perception now that we've gone through the nine months of of we, we're all coming out on the other side of this emergent everything as it feels like the horizons have pulled us forward around big issues there's no more hiding from a lot of them um have you noticed either you yourself personally or or frameworks um are there shifts now in the work that you thought like you know in 2019 our prism was this prism in 2021 um whoa the prism has really changed it's
3: such a good question um i'm so first of all i'm curious too kristen i mean i'm curious about all of these things and these answers that we're talking about are not things that are like knowable full stop they're things that you kind of learn about and you find out and you try different things and uh, try to come to things that work better than than what we're doing now. Uh, but we have so kind of as as first of all the pandemic kicked, and then um, the after George Floyd was killed, this continued. But we we as a staff uh, were really interested in that question that you're that you're asking. So how in this context are these cultural models that I've talked about these myths? changing? And if so, how and for whom? And I think this was provoked by the sense that in periods of upheaval like this, ideas are are brought to the surface and are up for grabs in ways that they aren't always. Uh, And that is, uh, it's an opportunity, right? Once ideas are up to the surface and are being debated, you have the opportunity to move them and advance them in ways that you don't when they are more kind of dormant or, or underneath the surface. And, and to me, this is, this is where framing really matters, right? The, the way that this chaos and upheaval kind of resolidifies, because it will is highly contingent upon the way that we choose to frame ideas now. And so I think this is part of why there is a, there's an uptick in the interest of framing. So people see ideas of structural racism coming up, people see ideas of prevention and public health coming up. People see ideas of, um, of, of policing and public safety coming up in ways that they just have not been available as ideas previously. And so I think that's both exciting as an opportunity, but it is also kind of heavy as a responsibility for people who are working on, on those issues to, to make the right choices in how they are positioned such that when things kind of do reconcretize or resolidify, that substrate of ideas is kind of different, right? You've got different sets of ideas that are near the top that used to be in the middle or towards the bottom. And we have a, a project that we started, ooh, I want to say in April, that is empirically answering that question. So it's an over time both quantitative and qualitative study that tracks changes in culture. Are those three cultural models, those three myths changing? Um, When do we see them changing? For whom are they changing? And I would say that even though we're, we're three months into a year long project, we are seeing change, right? We are seeing people be able to have conversations about structures in ways that we did not see prior to starting this research. We are seeing people talk about racism, not just as individual hatred, but at a structural systemic level in a way that we did not see before we started this work. So there is some indication that stuff is shifting and changing. To me, the really interesting question is, as we get into the medium or long-term, does that roll back or are we able to actually move things forward and and solidify some of these ideas that uh, that we need to have in our public discourse, that we deserve to have in our public discourse.
2: Well, it's super interesting. Nat, I want to thank you um, for your time and note that Frameworks is a nonprofit. It, it is foundation-funded, which means their stuff is a free and available to all on their website, FrameworksInstitute.org, if you're interested. And And if if you have an interest in integrating some of Frameworks' material into your communication strategy or into your brand, Hairpin can help with that. And we can be found at hairpin.org.
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of Design for Disruption. We are Hairpin. We build brands for world changers, do gooders, and hellraisers. We partner with our clients to tell compelling stories that touch hearts and engage minds. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, you can head to hairpin.org and specifically, you can head to designfordisruption.com to see how we're working with our clients to design for this disruptive moment. I want to thank our guest today, Nat Kendall-Taylor, CEO of Frameworks Institute, where you can find more about them on their website, linked in the description of this show. Please leave us a rating if you did enjoy this episode, and thank you so much for listening.